Hello, I'm Simon from Kent Libraries and this is On The Books, the library show born out of lockdown that talks about all things written word, thoughts, ideas, inspirations and much, much more. So sit back, relax and enjoy the conversation. Joining us on the books today is Sally Nichols, the prize-winning author of many books, including Ways to Live Forever and The Silent Stars Go By. Ah, so good morning and welcome. Welcome, thank you, thank you, thank you for having me. <laughs> you're, you're, I'm, I'm very pleased that you're here. I'm very pleased that you're here. I like to start my interviews by asking a, um, I, I kind of think it's a bit of an unfair question actually. But, but I do like to start this way. So when I was growing up, I had a couple of books that changed my life. I read them and my whole worldview changed. So I'm going to ask you, are there any books that when you read it changed your life? Not permanently, probably. When I was a child, I was, when I was about nine, it was all kind of, you know, Blyton and, um, and, uh, Arthur Ransom and people like that. And I mean, I don't think they've, they've kind of changed my life permanently, but <laughs> certainly they did when I was, when I was nine. Um, you know, that was a huge, that was a huge part of who I wanted to, you know, I had the George haircut and I wanted to camp in the garden and all that, all that sort of stuff. Um, I mean, one thing is a, that happens as a writer is you read a book and sort of, and sort of end up wanting to inhabit that world creatively so I got I got very into Dorothy Sears sort of about five years ago and have then gone on to write two or three books set in the early um Edwardian um era I've, I've got um Things a Bright Girl Can Do and A Chase in Time are both set sort of just before them during the First World War which is a little bit earlier than Dorothy Sears but it's that same kind of world um and I've got another one coming out um in a couple of months that's set in 1919 um so i mean that hasn't changed my life you know in, in a life sort of way but it's it that 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 kind of thing happens a lot it changes your um creative life you sort of go oh actually this is a really fun world to inhabit can i do anything creatively with that uh, you know you get very interested people i think i think the best writers are writing the sort of book that, that they love to read um, it was no good sort of deciding that you're going to write literary fiction if actually your heart lies in horror because <laughs> because you'll you'll write much better horror because you'll have a sense of a sense of of the genre um, yeah but, um, that leads me quite nicely into my next question actually because I was I was I was looking at your back catalogue obviously and you do have a lot of books that are historical settings so yeah what girls do yes. suffragettes uh, we all yeah. called that the Black Death. I was quite interested. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, um, Close your pretty eyes. Obviously, yeah, nineteenth yeah. um, century and the the, the new one. Yes, uh, the, uh, Silent Stars Go By, which is is um, turn of the century, isn't it? Yeah, nineteen ninety. It's just it's the it's it's Christmas. It's it's the first time I've done this. Really, it's it's a set over um, that kind of Christmas period. She's home. The, the main character is home for Christmas, so it's it's sort of sort of nineteen nineteen early nineteen twenty um, that those kind that kind of two weeks around Christmas. Hmm. And you've kind of already answered what I was going to ask, which was what made you <laughs> sorry, <laughs> but but, but it's, it's because you like that era and you like to inhabit that world. I mean, with the with the well. 
sort of yes and no. Um, I mean, you get you get interested in stories. So the Black Death, I wasn't particularly interested in inhabiting medieval England, but I I was interested in the story of it. I mean, the, the Black Death is a much more serious pandemic than the sort that we're currently living through. This, you know, that killed something like forty five percent of Europe. They think. I mean, it wiped out whole swathes of the population. They used the Black Death when they were planning um, responses to a nuclear war, because it was the closest thing we had to kind of a level of disaster. I mean, people were li literally expecting the world. And a bit in Revelations, I looked this up, they said, a third of the world will die in plagues. It was worse than Revelations <laughs> as, a, as a catastrophe. You know? I mean, not, not, you know, the whole of Babylon and the four horses of the apocalypse, all that kind of stuff, but people were living through it, expecting the end of the world. Um, and I mean, that was just, I just, that as a, as a kind of concept for a novel, um, it was a sort of real life apocalypse novel, really. I, I thought that was, that was an interest. So sometimes you hear a story or a character or, or an idea or a concept. I mean, people sort of, you'll, you'll know as a children's librarian, people, there's a lot of books about evacuees and things yeah. like that because it's such an interesting concept for a writer, a child kind of picked up and sent on their own to a stranger's house and kind of what happens, what happens there, you know, it's a good, it's a good starting point for a, for a story. And I'm, I'm, I'm sort of predicting we're going to, lockdown is going to be kind of similar. Cause again, that's quite, it's quite an appealing setup for a, for, for a narrative, a child who's, who's off school for six months and the parents are off working somewhere else. And they, you know, what are they going to do with that? With that, with that time. So some of that, I mean, I, a lot, you talk to a lot of historical writers and they will talk about how much they love doing the research and how excited they are by underpants and this kind of thing. And I'm not really one of those writers. I'm, I'm much more excited by the story and yeah. I would kind of like the research to sort of land in my head. I mean, it's interesting. You do find out interesting things and you find out unexpected things. I'm doing a, another time slip. I've got this whole series of time slip books for slightly younger children. Um, you know, the, you discover when you look at just like the structure of people's day, mm -hmm. you discover how how different. I mean, like Georgian England, they don't really have lunch in. I mean, they would if you would if you were a labourer and needed the food. But in a in a sort of Jane Austen house, you have your breakfast about ten, and then you have your dinner at about four because you you the candlelight is so is so expensive and just kind of you might have kind of snacks in the middle of the day but you wouldn't and just kind of stuff like that is interesting but it's mostly the, the story there is a story to be told in this setting you know how so, what do I so you're to read? very driven by story that's that's what what drives you as a writer well or, or i guess kind of the situation right. um ideas you know Close Your Pretty Eyes is about attachment disorder and then it's a story that you can use to explore that situation and what that means to be that child and to feel mm. like that and kind of what a, a, a good story takes a, I mean, a good character-led story takes a character and, and, and changes them somehow. In a character-led story you want to be a slightly different person at the end of the story than you were at the beginning. I mean, obviously, if you're writing detective fiction or something, it, it's more about solving the murder yeah. <laughs> or you know having an adventure. But 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 generally, and 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 so you need you 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 start off with a character and a situation or an idea, um, and you think, well, how how do I want my character to be changed, and what aspects do I want this story to sort of open up? 
and then you you find the story that that takes that but all writers are different as i'm as i'm sure you're realizing everybody yes. everybody starts from a different <laughs> a different place mm -hmm. that's the fascinating part of doing this and that's part of why we're doing it is to ask similar questions to a load of different writers and just seeing just how different writers are and it's yeah. been really fascinating yeah, yeah. to see it is, it's really interesting on panels, the first person will say, oh yes, your story must start with character. And then the second person will come along and go, well, actually, you know, all my stories start with a, you know, what if question and, you know, my characters don't really change. And it's, it, it is, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's the way writing should be because everyone... Yeah, no, completely. Yeah. Well, you, you, yeah, you want the, want the range of, range of, uh, range of, uh, different stories and ideas and you know. So I want to go to the fun stuff go by. Um, I, I was very lucky to get a, a preview copy to have a look at, Ooh. which is very nice. Um, yeah. I do, I mean, you're dealing with a, a concept that is difficult. Illegal adoption is not an easy subject to tackle in any way. Shape. No. Um, um, so I, I suppose I, I would like to ask, what was the most startling thing that you discovered whilst writing about this topic <laughs> yeah well I bet I'd be better explain what what the book is about for people who, who, who don't who don't know it's it's set in 1919 um, and it's a concept that is was actually you know reasonably common at the time um, where my main character is the eldest, one of the eldest children in the family and she has a child at 16 and the child is being raised as her youngest brother um so it's it's sort of exploring how that works as a, as a concept the child is now two and she's coming back home and just kind of and i i i was interested in that because there aren't the the rules mm. the sort of social rule you know we have social rules about how a step parent ought to behave and they're slightly different to how a how a, a parent should behave, which is slightly different to how a grandparent should behave. You know, there's kind of people have these kind of unwritten rules that you can't say that if you're not the parent, but you can say that if you're the parent, but you can't say that if you're the step parent. That kind of, and this, this just doesn't have those rules. And yeah, I mean, I guess what you've just, you've just kind of hinted to is probably the thing that kind of broke that story open, which is that adoption was not legal in this country until 1926. So you could, you you could you could do what what the parents do, which you know, and raise a child as your own. You know, I could say to you, here is this child who doesn't have any parents, and he, you are this couple who who want a child. You know, can this child come and live with you and call you mummy and daddy and 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 all that all all that. So you know, and that happened. You know, where there were you know there were adoptions and there were there were sort of mother and baby homes and workhouses and and this sort of thing. But legally, the child always remained. The, the parent i mean the, the book i was reading about i sort of came the book i was reading about about this said you know parents would write to the mother and baby home kind of heartbroken going i've changed my mind i want my baby back you know i've i've you know i've got i've got married now it's okay and they, the the home would kind of say oh it's too late now you know the child's been adopted and actually they were just they were just talking nonsense <laughs> you know the, the, the mother had a legal right to that child and could you know walk into a family with a child who probably hadn't been told that they were adopted and say you know I'm your mother I want you back I mean homes kind of relied on the fact that people didn't know this and they had these huge complicated adoption forms that everybody signed and and um and you know they just kind of 
relied on the fact that people people weren't aware of this. Um, but yeah, legally, legally it wasn't. And what that means for my main character, which is kind of the which is which is kind of the core of the novel, really, is mm. that her name is on her son's birth certificate as his mother, um, and that piece of paper is in the house. Mm. And I mean, birth certificates aren't as weren't as as crucial documents then, which is why you got so many stories of sold of, of boys signing up to the army at fourteen because you didn't, you know, people was it wasn't people people often didn't have a birth certificate, so it or they didn't have have a paper copy of it there would be a register of their birth but you know that that that's why you get these stories of children signing up at 14 which kind of didn't wouldn't happen nowadays in the same way um so the child may never find out who she is but that piece of paper is there in in her father's study and she is she is trying to negotiate how she can allow him to have a proper relationship with her mother and allow her mother to have a proper relationship with this child and to not kind of kind of ruin that yeah. but also how is she supposed to behave to this child knowing that one day he may well find this piece of paper <laughs> and realize that he's her mother and what what sort of relationship will he want or expect with her and and how can but and also how can she you know live her life and, 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 and I mean, not that it's something you can really move on from, but, but, you know, in, except that this has happened and, and sort of incorporate it in her life. And there isn't, there isn't a rule book for that. And, and she's somebody who is, who is trying really hard to do right by everybody in the family who's been affected by this. And there, there isn't, there isn't a right answer really. Um, whatever she does is going to hurt somebody. That struggle really came through, um, and, and the characters really did drive the the the, the story, which I was you know, I was hooked by what I got to read, which was which was awesome. Oh, good, thank yeah. you. Um, I know I'm, I'm, I'm really aimed at my age group, but I'm still it's, it, the characters caught my attention really quickly. Um, which is yeah, it's certainly it's certainly the the oldest book that I've written yeah. so far. I mean, it it's. You know, it, it's about marriage and, and motherhood. You know, there's, there's an argument. There's an argument that that it's 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 it's, it's kind of clinging on to YA by its fingertips, really. <laughs> Tenuously clinging on to YA, yeah. Tenuously clinging on to it, yeah. How much do your characters change during the writing? Do, do you find they take on a life of their own, or or do you guide them more? Yeah, sometimes. I mean, sometimes you have this idea for a character, and you realise as you're writing it that that doesn't work. So the Isabel in in um, All Fall Down was a boy when I started to write her. Um, right. And it just didn't didn't work. She sounded like a girl. And actually the things that I wanted her to do for the story to work worked much better if she was a girl. I mean she ends up her parents sort of say, you know, the children go off and work, live in the barn and, and that kind of stuff. And actually as a boy she would have been out in the fields all day. She wouldn't really know how to deal with that. And that's quite, in order for her to be a sympathetic character, it sort of, it sort of made more sense that she'd been in the house all day and she, you know, she knew how to look after her younger siblings and that, and that kind of stuff. Um, uh, so yeah, sometimes you, you try one thing and it, it doesn't work. Um, sometimes you, 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 you read things and, the insights that you gain from that make you 
make you kind of reform the narrative. I mean, again, all fall down, sort of in a in a in a practical in a practical sense. I'd, I'd when I first you know very very first started writing before I'd really done any of the research. Mm. Um, I, I kind of thought, oh, well, you know, I've read The Wife of Baths, you got married at 12, like, this is a thing, you know, maybe my main character will be married at 12, like, you know. And, and actually, when, you, when I started doing the research, I realised that the reason The Wife of Baths getting married at 12 is such an unusual thing, is that it's like if two people got married at 16 nowadays. Like, it, it does happen, but that's, that's very rare. You know, if you said I, me and my boyfriend got married at 16, everyone would be a bit like, what? <laughs> you know, <laughs> you, you had a house by yourself at 16. Like, how do you know what I mean? It would, it would be the reason she makes so much of it is because that was so unusual. And actually, it would be much more usual to marry in your 20s when you were able to support yourself and able, you know, the physical work of a farm. Two 12 year olds couldn't do the physical work as, as laborers <laughs> that would be necessary to support a family as a peasant. Um, I mean, it would be quite common for, uh, princesses or so forth to be married at six or seven or leave betrothed mm. at that kind of age, but they wouldn't be expected to go off and start their own household at, at six or seven. Um, and they wouldn't be expected to do the physical work of running a house. So there are things like that, that you sort of start off thinking, oh, it'll be like this. And then you do the research and discover that actually, it won't be. And I get, I mean, I guess, um, I was a bit like that. One of the books I read when I was researching it was a woman who'd done lots of interviews with mm. women in America who had chosen to give up babies for adoption. Cause in, in Britain, generally speaking, if you give up a child, it's, it's because you have no choice about it. Yeah. We, we have very few sort of voluntary adoptions in this country, but in America it's much more common because, um, uh, uh, abortion is such a fraught issue mm. in America, and also I guess it's more—it's it, it, more—it's—it's it's more normalised. It's—it's um, mm. it's seen as a much more acceptable thing to do. Whereas in this country, which having read this book, I think is a much more healthy attitude. People are very, very much like you know, if you can keep this child, that's mm. that, that's kind of better, <laughs> better for everybody. And, and you know, the book talked a lot about what a traumatic event this was for a woman giving up a child. And actually the situation that um, Margot has in the book, she's very fortunate because her child is still there in her life. She can still see him. She can see that she's happy. She can have a relationship with him. Um, and this book that I read was very clear that, you know, part of why it was so traumatic was because you just waved goodbye to your child and never saw them again. And you had no idea yeah. where they were or what was happening. And, I, and actually, I mean, it sounds, it, it sounds like, like like such a such a fraught situation having your mother raise your child, but actually in terms of Margot's mental health, that's a much more healthy way of doing it um, because he's still there. She's able to see that he's okay. She's able she's able to even have a relationship with him. Um, but yeah, you reading it, you do kind of think actually this is this is something that that trans and because it's secret as well. I hadn't kind of got my head around how damaging that is to keep a secret as big mm. as that. You know, a lot of them talked about this sense of, 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 you know, what would people think of me if they found out, you know, people talked about lying to their, 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 their subsequent children. Um, 
and how how difficult that was that they were hiding this huge and significant thing from their family you know sometimes from not usually from their husbands but sometimes from their husbands mm. so from their from certainly from their younger their younger children um and and how yeah how how much that that kind of psychically damages you this kind of permanently not being able to reveal this huge and fundamental part of yourself and what a shameful thing it is as well how much shame people felt about it and that was that was kind of i'd sort of i'd sort of you 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 sort of think about that but you don't you don't kind of appreciate what what a big thing it is until you kind of read about women women who've been in in that scenario um, so yeah, you you kind of you kind of have to go back and sort of deepen it and go actually no this is this is a bigger thing than you've than you've kind of acknowledged if that makes sense. It makes perfect sense. Um, you were saying about social pressure, um, or you're alluding to social pressure, and just how much yeah. pressure is put on our mental state by society and, and the, the supposed rules that we have to follow and lots of yeah. right and wrong. I mean, you said that the book brings across that that level of struggle really well. Um, Where do you think reading fits in to helping with mental health or hindering with mental health? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, for me, for me, a great deal. Um, I mean, that was something I really noticed in lockdown because um, I was, you know, I have two small children and my husband and I were both working at home and we have a very small house. So that was incredibly stressful and, and quite how, for me, how, how grounding it was when I kind of said, actually, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna do some reading every day, mm. and just that kind of escape, um, and that escape to somewhere that is is an exciting and and um, and, and safe place to be. Um, I think I think emotionally, reading is really important, particularly for children. Mm. Um, that being able to name have the the, the the greater an emotional kind of literacy you have i think um that's that's really important for for mental i mean i know they talk about this a lot in terms of men's mental health that yeah. they can't you know they did the bbc did that that study where they asked children to to describe emotions and the only one the boys could describe was anger and yeah. you sort of you know and these weren't these weren't these weren't children, you know, in 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 deprived houses or anything like. This was an ordinary, yeah. you know. They obviously had loving parents, and you know, and the girls could all do it. Like it wasn't it wasn't that they were growing up in emotionally illiterate families. It was that their sisters were were accessing something that that they weren't. Um, and I do think reading is a is a part of that because I mean I'm sure you I'm sure you'll know better than me that, that, that girls girls seem to be seem, seem kind of culturally able to access books more more than boys than boys do i mean i don't know if that's if you think no it's true. it's definitely anecdotal and there's definitely statistics that back it up um i um it's it's a crazy thing i think part of it is that stereotype that we're still desperately trying to get away from where you know uh, almost that i suppose victorian sort of boys do like you know work in the work outside and do play sports yeah. and you know all that yeah, sort of, yeah. they don't read and they don't and despite years of not actually having a society like that we're still struggling to overcome that 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 gender stereotyping that happens at such an early age 
Yeah, and I mean it has negative it has negative consequences for girls as well yeah, because yeah, you know playing yeah. outside is great like climbing trees and digging pools is great as well I mean you know yeah. <laughs> it, it works it works both ways but yeah I think I think being able having the kind of structure and the names for what is happening to you is a is a hugely powerful mm. is a powerful the, the kind of the kind of emotional narrative of what's going on in your head is a is a hugely important thing to have and the emotional narrative for what's happening in other people's head i mean it, mental health we have this idea whenever you talk about mental health it seems to go back to the individual like you know you need yeah. to go and have counseling you need to go and have meditation you need to go and have you know cbt or whatever but actually an emotionally strong society is one where you know people aren't bullying their classmates people aren't isolated because they're you know they have neighbors who knock on their door and say are you okay or you know friends who give them a ring and say you know let's you know let's let's go out let's go out for coffee like actually it a more a more connected and emotionally aware society is one where these problems are are less likely to develop you know if your school life is being bullied by by children whose only emotion is anger mm. your mental health is going to suffer much more than if you're a class full of children who have been you know taught kindness and and, and empathy and and all those so it's all it's all connected everything everything is connected um and yeah books they're great <laughs> and books they're great i'm glad you said that i work in a library books are great <laughs> uh, anyone who's listening to this books are fantastic. we love you we missed you <laughs> Ironically, because we're doing this over Zoom and the whole laptops and the modern um, modern world that, we've, that COVID really did force on us more than we would have done before. Yeah, 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 no, completely. I, I, I do like to ask, we live in an age of devices and you see it everywhere. People glued to their phones, uh, their, yeah. their pads, their, their laptops. Um, so in an age of devices, does the written word still have a place, do you think? Well, a lot of, the, a lot of what people are doing on devices is reading the written word. I mean, I know people are playing computer games and so forth, but when, you know, social media is all written. Yeah. Is that all, that's, that's all a written, that's a written communication. Um, you know, when you're browsing articles that pop up on Facebook or whatever, that's, that's the written word as well. I mean, there's no law that says reading an article on your phone is somehow less literate than reading <laughs> it in a newspaper or in a collection of essays. <laughs> You know, I mean, some of the some of the, the the best-selling books of recent times have been bloggers and you know, turning their blogs into books, and it doesn't magically have more power because it is it is on 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 paper. I mean, I I spend a lot of time online because that's where I that's where I work. Yeah. You know, I turn on the computer in the morning and I, I I type in front of a computer all day, and then I turn it off at the end of the day and you know my my social circle is a lot of writers who are all doing the same so i i mean i i feel like the internet is i mean the internet is people in your living room and people are really positive and really negative at the same time i mean it's like <laughs> but you know what i mean i mean yes there is bullying and there is there is shaming and there is you know like people having really angry arguments yes on on the internet 
and there is also are also friendships and romances and education and support and um, they did a really interesting experiment apparently where they they studied two council estates one of which had got broadband and the other one hadn't right and they found that the the, the council estate with broadband people were actually much more connected to the real world because they could apply for jobs so they were more they had more money um right. but also they could kind of google you know toddler groups in my city or you know meetups or board games cafes or whatever it was that they were they were they were needing um you know access support for my elderly mother who needs a carer yeah. um and and it was a really i mean i'm sure it wasn't a universally positive experience but there were a lot of positive things that that that, that estate were able to access that the other estate weren't um i, I mean i agree think, an integral part of, of libraries now is our e-offering, our electronic offering. We yeah. do have a massive yeah. uh, electronic... And that's actually really important for yeah. a lot of people. Yes. Um, yeah, it totally is. Um, uh, so, and COVID really showed just how important that actually was. We, we got a lot more people accessing it because they couldn't get to the physical libraries. So that was good. Um, yeah, yeah. The, the only criticism I tend to hear, or I've heard from other authors with the device era, is the shortening of the attention span. Um, it can be a real positive yeah. and a real negative. Yeah, I mean, I would be interested to read studies mm. on whether that is a real thing. Because, I mean, they all said the sort of same thing about the MTV generation, who are now all in their 40s. So, I mean, <laughs> I, mean, I, don't, I, mean I, I mean, genuinely, I don't, I don't know if it's a real thing yeah. or not. Um, and I don't know how much of it is a, well, you've just got a phone there. I mean, I can see that if you're reading a book and you just kind of want to check you know, whether anyone replied to your, your post on Instagram or whatever. I can see that being a real thing, but I don't know if you take the phone away, whether actually children in school are less. I mean, anecdotally, things like GCSEs and A-levels are getting harder. People are getting, people mm. are, 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 are able to do more work. So I would question whether it's a, it's a permanent brain, brain yeah. effect. But I don't know. I mean, I don't know. I genuinely, I genuinely don't don't know i haven't i haven't read my my suspicion would be that it's probably less yeah. pronounced than people think it is and it's probably situational um i mean being in the middle of an interesting argument on twitter is a bit like being in in, in the middle of an interesting argument in real life you know yeah. it's, it's hard to concentrate on your book if if you know somebody is is, is being wrong on the internet you know <laughs> you, you you kind of want to get back to it but i think i think that's that's true if you're working in an office as well i mean you know you and I don't work in offices, so my, my experience of this is limited. Is limited, but um, but yeah, yeah. it's uh, I, I see exactly where you're coming from. That that makes a lot of sense. Um, but it's weird the stigmas we attach. Uh, I, I read somewhere once that we the generations, every generation, has liked to complain about the youth of today, going all yes, well, of course they do. <laughs> so it's like it's not a new thing. <laughs> like the youth of today, it's like no, every generation has complained yeah. about. It come i like to ask about things that are uh, all sorts of things of other people agree to be interviewed and and i am a massive fan of this so i am going to ask how (laughs) how was climbing mount doom and for those of you we're talking about mount ruhapeu in new zealand but but please yes yeah well i i actually um I, i lord of the rings film came out about a month before I was in New Zealand, the first one. 
so so I saw it in Australia, um, and then I did went on this kind of back, I was eighteen, and I went on this sort of backpacking bus around New Zealand, and there were all these people who were kind of carefully, you know, only packed four pairs of underpants or something with this enormous. <laughs> copy of Lord of the Rings in their backpacks that they were dragging around New Zealand because they'd come to New Zealand and and you know they were going to read Lord of the Rings while they were here because it was such a, a kind of cultural mm. experience um so yeah that was one of the places that you know and, and you you know you'd be on this bus and you'd look out the window and you'd be like yeah yeah that is that is middle earth right out there I mean the scenery in New Zealand is is incredible um it is it's it's like it's like the Peak District sort of sort of ramped up, you know, times times ten. Um, and yeah, this very kind of bleak sort of sort of. I mean, it it, it was a mountain, you know. I, I like climbing mountains, so it so it felt like it felt like a mountain. But yes, the top was the top was very bleak and and and, and black and, and all this. Sadly, there weren't like the the, the hordes <laughs> and walks and things. Well, probably sadly for the best. Yeah. Lord of the Rings. Uh, I have to say, uh, Pete Jackson when he did that film, I was. Ooh, 22 when it came out, I think. And I had been reading Lord of the Rings. I was given The Hobbit by my mum at 10. And I think I'd picked up Lord of the Rings when I was 14 or 15. And I'd been reading it religiously ever since. And to this day, in fact. And what amazed yeah. me about Pete Jackson's film was he's put what's in my head on screen. How did he yeah. do that? <laughs> the, first, the first one particularly, I think, because it's more... Yeah. They, so they sort of went off a bit in the, in the second and third ones. But but the first one and yeah and, and the the Hobbit we didn't get to go and see Hobbiton because the bus tour didn't didn't go there but um, but it was yeah it was a really incredible experience I looked at it back. you did quite a bit of travelling after university so you yes. went into you did I did six months in Japan, Japan. yeah yeah six months in Japan in a in a Red Cross hospital and then a month in Australia and a month in New Zealand which is probably the most adventurous I, I, I've been you know my whole life. <laughs> Did that help inspire you when it came to writing, uh, just being in other countries? Or did it give you any idea? Not really. Mm. I, I mean, everything, everything ends up inspiring you, I think, as a, as a writer, because you, you, you are writing from, from who you are. Um, I mean, not, not consciously. But I would be surprised if there wasn't something unconsciously in there. I do want to ask though, because you are in a position where your first ever novel was made into a film. Yes. How was that experience? Yeah. Uh, Wonderful. I mean, people, people sort of say your best, best. I have two best um, being an author experiences and, and one is when I got that first phone call from my agent to say that somebody wanted to buy my book and you know all this work had had actually pulled off um, and the second we got to go on the set and look around this whole house that they built in Newcastle um, of what my child's house was going to you know and they put like he's into airships so they've got airships in the bedroom and there were books that they'd reckon you know where, you know his sister like sylvanians so there were some sylvanians in the and just this kind of like i'm watching like you know proper you know amelia amelia fox was there and you know proper yeah. proper grown-up actors and just being like you were you were spending all day like because a set some my husband said making a film was a bit like building a house in a day, like you have 50 people all there on set. And I was like, there's all these very serious grown-ups. 
and they're spending all day pretending to be characters from the back of my head. Like that was really because you when you write when you start writing a book, it's an incredibly personal thing. I mean, it's just particularly when you've not been published. That was my first book. You know, mm. it's you on the bus kind of daydream about, about these characters. And the idea that they would then become something that had such a literal and physical mm. existence was really weird. <laughs> <laughs> that actually leads me on to an interesting question. How do you cope with ownership? And by that, I mean, once it's out there, once it's gone into the public domain, your characters take on lives from everybody else. They, they, they add their own stamp onto it or anything like that. Um, how do you get with like, that was, that was mine in my head. Now that belongs to, well, to some people that belongs to them entirely. I mean, how do you get around? Just you, you have, you have to accept it right. to a certain degree and you have to, people can get quite angry about stuff and go, oh, that's not what I intended at all. And, and, and sort of, it doesn't matter what, what you intended if, if it's not there in the book. And if people aren't, I mean, obviously, if, if one or two readers are kind of misinterpreting the book, you sort of go, well, okay, you know, that, yeah. that's, if most readers get it, then, then it's clearly there. But if a lot of people aren't, aren't understanding what you've, writ you've written, you, you sort of have to accept that you, you haven't made it, it clear enough. Right. You haven't you haven't put what you wanted to say out there. Um, there was an interest with the Suffragette book. The Suffragette mm -hmm. book came out about a year after the Suffragette film. And the Suffragette film got a lot of backlash about the fact that it was so white. Um, yeah. You know, everybody in the film was white. And that was kind of an unfair criticism because the, the Suffragette movement in Britain was very white. There were one or two very high profile you know, non-white, mm. non-white subjects who, you know, who were, have, have been kind of a bit more celebrated in, in, in later years. But in, in England, it, it was a very white movement. It, you know, that, 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 that's what it was. There were very, very few non-white, non-white suffragette campaigners. So sort of that, The film and the book were, were kind of, um, and I think the reason there was such a backlash is because suffering in America is a hugely charged issue because um, white women got the vote before black women did. Um, there was a real, there was a, there's been, a, there's a lot of, there's a lot of kind of racial um, tension about that and about, you know, how, how the suffrage movement is portrayed. So there were a lot of, I think, American feminists or feminists with an interest in black history who, who were kind of looking at this film and saying, well, you know, interpreting it through a through a um, an American lens. Yeah. Um, but I mean, in Britain, it, it just it, it just was. You know, there were there were one or two one or two very high powered sort of non-white feminists, but but fundamentally, it, it was it was a movement of white people, and and that's a problem. But you know, that's, that's what it was. So, um, when I wrote the things a bright girl can do, that's reflected in the book. You know, I have, I have, I have lesbian characters. I have, I have working class characters. I have a lot of minorities who are represented in the book. I mean, there were loads of lesbians 
Yes. Movement for, for obvious reasons, it was a, it was a really queer movement, um, <laughs> and, and that's and that's reflected. But um, sort of for obvious reasons. Um, yeah. But uh, you know, and I did. You know, I there are a couple of you know I do mention some of the big names who aren't white, and uh, the East End of London, where the book is set. Um, was a very diverse place, but diversity meant something different in yes. in, um, in in Edwardian England, which is quite interesting. You know, people will say, "Oh, there were loads of Irish people there," because Ireland is another country, mm. and actually, there is a lot of a lot of. Well, there wasn't another country then. Um, I say, take it back. Ireland wasn't another country then. They considered so, it know, another country. Yeah, a lot of kind of anti-Irish feeling in a way that doesn't really make make sense to us no. as now um and you know a lot of anti-jewish feeling um and there are jewish characters in the book irish characters in the book and, and they're kind of coded white nowadays in the way that i mean irish people were white but they they it, there was a different there was a different kind of language around around diversity um so i i felt like i'd sort of put in quite a lot of sort of little references to people and you know i'd have characters with with kind of Jewish names and, and, and Irish yeah. names, and I, I did have one character with a with a non-white name, and, and this kind of stuff. But also, fundamentally, I was describing a culture that was very white, um, and there were a few people who who had kind of who had kind of picked up on the backlash to the suffragette film um, and and gone, oh, you know, why aren't there all these black suffragettes in this book and I did I did do a, a thread on Twitter sort of saying look you know I, I have referred to some of the people who you said I haven't referred to but you know fundamentally if you didn't pick up on that that's a problem that I've that's 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 that, that error is on me you know if if I haven't made this clear enough that that you're not noticing it that that's you know that's on my shoulders and and I accept that um but also this was a incredibly complicated book mm. to research it was a lot of work i spent a lot of time trying to make sure i got the lesbian experience and the queer experience right and you know the working class experience you know there are there are minority i mean working class isn't a minority but it's it's a minority in edwardian fiction yes. it is, edwardian fiction is all written by vicar's daughters it is really hard to find there's very very little working class they exist it does exist but there's very little kind of first person working working class writing in a body because they just didn't have time lots of them couldn't write and mm. those that could write you know were down mines all day or, or or sweeping floors and and you know blacking lead like they didn't have the the, the time to to write those those books so i kind of said look you know i've done a lot of research and i didn't I didn't have the time to do black and Asian voices authentically. This, you know, that I, 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 if you want to write that book, that's brilliant. But that wasn't that wasn't my book, um, and that went down quite well. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think I think I think the internet works much better if you're able to apologise. Right. I think the people who work, seem to work well on the internet are the people who are able to say, "Yeah, you're right. That's not in the book." Um, there was a thing, Lin-Manuel Lin Manuel, the, the people were kind of saying, oh, you didn't mention these characters were slave owners. You don't have any, you don't have any, you know, Native Americans in Hamilton. You don't have any kind of acknowledgement of the things these people got wrong. And he kind of went, yeah, you're right. I don't, you know, I, 
it's a very short musical about an extremely complicated period in history and I've got everything in there that I had the space to but you're right there's some stuff that I missed out and that is part of the narrative that's not there and you know go and write something out and I'm like actually yeah the, the people I see who seem to come to most grief on the internet are the ones who aren't able to listen and apologize yeah. with with feeling and go yeah you're right you know that's not in my book maybe it should be or you're right you know, there's not in my book. Maybe you should go and write a book that's got that in it because that's my book's doing something different. Um, you do come up with, you've just come up against an interesting, I'm a big fan of history. Uh, yeah. I, I, I didn't study uh, officially history. I've just, as I've grown older, I've, I've read a lot. <laughs> it's interesting. Uh, really interesting. It's fascinating. But it's that, intro, I find that the modern era, and this is not to disparage people, but the, the modern era, when you're writing historical context and you've got the modern, and the very right modern awareness of all the different um, minorities and, and diversity. And, and One thing that's quite interesting, I think, is reading historical documents that aren't written by the people in power. Yes. Because um, there are a lot, a lot of those voices are there. I mean, if you yeah. want to write about you know, women going off and having adventures and, and, and being kick-ass and feminist and all that kind of stuff. Those women have existed for centuries. You know, there are a lot of kind of Victorians, you know, Victorian female doctors with female botanists, all this kind of stuff. And I mean, you know, the, one, one of the, obviously for things of Bright Girl Kader, I was reading sort of Sylvia Pankhurst, who was a kind of pacifist socialist, you know, female social entrepreneur who was you know spending her time doing all sorts of stuff that was really not very very you know having having affairs with with, with labor politicians she had a child outside <laughs> wedlock she founded this huge kind of social enterprise and 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 you know increasingly communist um set of stuff in in in, in bow i mean she's not somebody who is a a traditional mm. edwardian woman and reading her writing makes you realize quite how much of history is written by the men at the top. Um, so I think those attitudes are there, but you're right that the other attitudes are also there. I mean, you need to, you need to kind of, and one of the, I mean, one of the things I find interesting about writing history actually is writing, is the fact that you're writing about then for now. Yes. But, you know, if, if modern children want to read about what Edwardian life is like, they can go and get an Edwardian book off the shelves. You're not, you're not actually, I mean, you want it to be accurate, mm. but you also want to be relevant to a modern, a modern child. You want to, you know, write, writing a, if, if I wrote the sort of book that's written for Edwardian children about, about how important it is to settle down and be a good wife and, and, you know, learn how to cook the dinner, like that, that wouldn't be, that wouldn't be very relevant to, uh, to, to a modern a modern girl, but also a book like one of the books I read was in H. G. Wells's Anne Veronica, which is mm. about a girl who is trying not to do that. You know, she goes off and gets arrested for for, for breaking into Parliament as a as a suffragist. You know, her she wants to go off and be a scientist. Like that's a that's a that's an Edwardian book written by an Edwardian writer, and that is that is also a, a, a true and valid valid experience. It's not the normal experience, and part of what the book is about is about you know, all the people in her life who, who don't want us to do that. But it, it's as valid as the story about someone learning how to be a good wife. 
it's just it's more relevant to a modern reader because that's a struggle that that is more relevant to what they're trying to do with their lives I, I completely understand where you're coming from and I hadn't actually really thought about what you're saying about the the fact that actually a lot of history is written by the the, the people at the top who are a very, very limited narrow view set <laughs> it's so it's so interesting when you see all the other stories that aren't you know that now that, that narrative of world war one that we are still being taught in our schools yeah it's not that it's false but it's a very narrow narrative and it's not the narrative that that was true for everybody who was living through that, that war no and i suppose what you were saying about finding the stories that will resonate with the modern audience that is really your task as a modern writer for for yeah. now yeah yeah, completely. Completely. yeah. it makes perfect sense now you've said it <laughs> I've only got a couple more questions because I realise that we are we are barreling through our time rather rapidly, which is a shame because I'm really enjoying this conversation. Um, oh, I talk too much. No, no, not at all. I think your answers have been fascinating, really interesting. What book, if any, do you wish you had written? That I wish I'd written? Yeah. Um, probably at the moment because I have two small children. Um, that, that would be where the wild things are, which ah, is just right. perfect. Um, yeah. I've read a lot. Of picture books and and where the well things are is 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 in a world of its of its. Um, I mean, I've not I've not read another book that is as 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 perfect to read aloud. So yeah, at the moment <laughs> that would be. Well, still allowed to change. It's not set in stone, of course. But um, yeah, I do find that fascinating because obviously, as I, I've been told by many writers, um, one of the keys to actually learning to write is to read widely really widely yeah of course of course not necessarily just the stuff that you'd be normally interested in it teaches you the process i think stephen king said once that you know part of his learning to write was reading nearly everyone he could get his hands on um yeah. so no completely yeah. so it's always interesting to hear what someone says you know when they find a book that goes oh i wish i'd written that because that's just it yeah. Just resonates yeah what authors have inspired you as a creative person yeah that will vary with each book um so i mean things things a bright girl can do and um uh the silent stars go by are both uh set in a similar time for the sort of first the first 20 years of of this century so one of the things i did reading that book was to go and read books that had been written by people who were actually there yeah um so for um so for uh silent stars go by a, a big influence was um noel stretfield's autobiography a vicarage family which is um because the main character is a vicar's daughter and that's about her her life in as an edwardian child and because she's a writer she has a real eye for the sort of details of writer's life she takes you through a whole sunday in a in a vicarage what what the things they would do she talks a lot about the clothes that they wore the the, the kind of details, you know, she has a whole bit on what the governess's life was mm. like um, in Edwardian Britain. That was really useful. Um, another one was a book called Hostages to Fortune, um, which again, it was about a woman who has her first child in, I think, 1918, 1917, something like that. And it's a kind of history of her children's childhood, um, which has a lot about the kind of a lot of a lot of a lot of women's books from this period because a lot of writers are 
are kind of mid lower middle class. I mean, obviously you have you have you know um, the the writers who PG Woodhouse who's living in his mansion house or whatever. But a lot of a lot of writing in this period is 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 women who are teachers or vicars' wives, vicars' daughters, um, women who are hostages to fortune as a doctor's wife. Um, and so there is an awful lot about the sheer drudge of housework and the sheer impossibility of doing anything else. I don't, I don't think we realise quite how much women owe to the washing machine um, mm. because that's a whole day of work, otherwise doing a family's wash um, without a washing machine. I mean, middle class women would have, would have sent that to the laundry. Um, you know, you would, have a, you would have a laundry service if you were a middle class woman, but if you were a working class woman like Nell's mother, you know, Nell talks about being taken out of school every week in order to do the washing. Mm. And, you know, she's getting, she's getting, you know, 80% of the education that her brothers are getting because she's not in school on Mondays because that's wash day. Mm. Um, and that was really useful in terms of the sort of practicalities of a childhood. Um, obviously, there's always another one that was really useful. My mind's gone blank. Um, Yeah, I can't remember. There was another. There was oh yeah, invitation to the waltz. Um, right. Rosamond Learman, um, which is a character who is about the same age as Margot, and it's a whole description of her going to a ball and what the ball. I mean, it sounds it's it's wonder, It's a wonderful, wonderful book if you are at all interested in teenage girls going to balls in nineteen twenty. Um, uh, um, uh, that whole kind of social awkwardness. It's a girl in it. It read the the. It reads very emotionally, very mm. much like what school disco is like if you're a bit of a wallflower and if you have to wait for a boy to ask you for every dance. Um, but the sort of details of the different people who are there, and again, clothes, you know, Edwardian writers are, are female writers are obsessed with clothes because they are so expensive and you have to make them yourself and they have to look right. And if they right. don't, or, or how a dress maker. Um, but if they don't look right, then then that's a you know, and you only have two or three dresses. So it's this whole kind of. I mean, Neil Stratfield is is, is is sort of famous for this. The sort of how are you going to get the audition frock that you need? Um, so yeah, but they're, but they're, they're different for different books. Um, writing is a conversation between different writers. Um, every book that you read will be drawing on, even if it's not doing so consciously. Even if even and particularly sort of genre writers. It, it's drawing on all the conventions of of the genre. I mean, Tolkien spawned a whole gen genre, really, of writing. But I mean, seriously, you know, there's there's the the kind of high fantasy books mm. are incredibly incredibly kind of genre genre savvy, and 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 Tolkien wrote that genre. Yeah. Um, but he took all of it from you know Beowulf and and you know, the Norse writers and things like that. So that's what writing. That's what you wouldn't think, you know, oh, Game of Thrones is inspired by Beowulf. But, you know, it is because of the way this conversation works. Yeah, it, you can definitely draw its DNA. You, you, yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, 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 yeah. Well, that's really exciting. Unashamedly, really, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I wrote, I wrote my second book, um, Season of Secrets, um, which Anderson are hopefully going to be reissuing, which is really exciting, is all about sort of pagan pagan mythology and I remember speaking to a, a woman in a pagan bookshop and being like am I allowed to do this and she was like that's that's what paganism is about it's about mm. taking the stories and and turning them into different stories 
I mean, yeah, uh, mythology runs through everything. I mean, it, it always comes yeah. back to the end. There's some hymn yeah, 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 somewhere. Yeah, yeah. It's, not, it's not stealing. It's, no. it's threads. It's taking all these different threads and weaving them to make something different. Well, yeah, we, yeah writers are... Sorry, I mean, we've been telling stories as, a, as human beings since we were human beings, I think. I mean... No, yeah. I think you're right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, I, I do, because we do ask, like, ask people who are trying, who want to get into writing or, or, or learning with writing or anything like that. Um, I, I, I like to ask the question, how do you overcome the dreaded blank screen or white page? <laughs> I think you need to have confidence in what you're writing. I mean, as a professional writer, the, the deadline is, is really important. Like, it's... When you're, a, when you're a new writer, you have an awful lot of books that are about four pages long or two <laughs> chapters long um, because you have an idea and you get excited about it and then actually doing, doing the grunt work is, is the hard bit. I mean, I wrote my first book on a master's programme, so I had, I had a deadline and I think that Live Forever is, 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 is comparatively short. Mm. Um, which was really helpful because I was able to sort of say, right, you know, I need to get this book finished by September and as finished and as polished as I can possibly make it. Um, whereas the writers on my course who were writing much longer books mm. and were only handing in a chunk of their work, um, they, they, they often didn't get something that was finished. And that was actually a huge problem because they then had to go back into full-time jobs and families and all, the, all those other commitments um, with this book that, that, you know, they then had to kind of finish around the edges. So having something that was completely finished was, was a huge gift. Um, and as a professional writer, having a deadline is, is really important because writing is really hard. It's really boring. I mean, when I talk to school children, I say, look, you are doing the same piece of homework all day, every day for a year. Right. Like it's, it's not, bits of it are fun, bits of it are exciting, but a lot of it is just slog. And it's slog through something that isn't very good because you know your first drafts aren't very good. Um, so yeah, having having some sort of deadline. I have a friend who used to post post me twenty pound notes, and then I, she would post me um, two thousand two thousand pounds a week, and I had to post her back a twenty a twenty pound note. And if she didn't send me the work, then it got sent. She she was she was on the sort of soft level, which she got sent to a charity that she liked. The hard well, level is you sort of send it to a political organisation you really profoundly disagree with, and, <laughs> and you, you know you have to get your work done, or you know the, the party you really don't want to get into power gets your money. Um, <laughs> But she, she, she picked the soft, uh, soft, soft option, which was that it went to a charity she supported. But, um, but yeah, I mean, there's a lot of writers kind of use tricks like that just to kind of say, look, this is something that needs to be done, and there is a purpose to this. Makes sense that yeah, you need something to spur you on. Um, Your undergrad was philosophy, is that correct? Yes, philosophy and literature. Philosophy and literature. Did studying philosophy because I'm I'm fascinated with what people study and learn and stuff like that. Education <laughs> really interests me. Um, I work in a library. I suppose I should be interested in people learning things. Um, yeah. Did philosophy in any way help you with writing? Just the study of philosophy and thought? My first book, yeah. I mean, mm. my first book is a sort of philosophical, yeah. philosophical explanation of what happens to you after you die, written for 10-year-olds. Um, 
later books, not so much, but I am interested in books with different voices. Mm. Um, Things a Black Girl Can Do is three girls with very different philosophical ideas about everything from conscription to violence in the suffrage movement to um, kind of, you know, king and country and all that kind of stuff. And one of the challenges when writing the book was to make each voice as compelling in its own right, even though they profoundly disagree with each other. Mm. So, you know, I have one character who's, who's saying that, you know, that war is a, is a ridiculous way to solve conflict and we all ought to be pacifists and, you know, this war is a, is a dreadful idea. And I have another one who is sending her fiance off to the front line and, you know, thinks this is a wonderful sacrifice that he's making. And I, I was trying to make, I was trying to believe both those contradictory points when I wrote the book, which is a really interesting challenge as a writer. And I mean, I, I don't think I quite succeeded, but I am, I am interested in in that idea of having of having different voices in a book that disagree with them, and a, and a novel being a sort of conversation between different experiences and um, and and choices. Uh, in um, in in uh, <coughs> um, silent stars go by. You see, you you have voices. You don't. Margot is the main character, but you you have in the book you have other women who've made different choices to the choice that she made, and this sort of conversation about which is the right choice and which is the wrong choice, and that sort of thing. Um, it's it's which I very guess is a philosophical way of looking at things. It's very philosophical. It's just fascinating. I've just it's just been really interesting hearing all the different inspirations and, and drivers behind how people yeah. write. It's just really, really interesting. So, because we, as consumers of writing, we, we get the book and we read what you've written and, and we, we see this wonderful thing or we read it on the screen, but you don't really have a concept of what's actually gone in to produce those words yeah. that oh, you yeah. see. Um, it's like, it's like a, you know, baking a cake or the, the, say making sausages, you know, nobody sees the process, they only see the end product. Yeah. And it's fascinating to hear the, the, the process. Um, um, I'm going to have two last questions for you, and then we're going to have to call it quits. Um, my, my second to last question is, what do public libraries mean to you? Well, as a, I mean, as a child, they were a huge, a huge part of my life. I had two libraries within walking distance of my house, and I used to read a huge amount. You know, they, they ordered in all of the Famous Five and all of Discworld <laughs> and all those sorts of, you know, I used to go in and be like, I'd like to order 25 books in this series, you know, this nine-year-old, and they'd be like, right, you know, okay. Yeah. You know, every, every Secret Seven, you know, you used to be able to order little cards, you could order three books at a time, and I used to get a whole stack of them and order, you know, the entire Secret Seven series on a stack and hand them back, and they would just kind of like, take this card from the small child and go, oh, of course, you know, we'll let you know when they're in. And, um, and I can't remember how they let you know in those days, because we didn't have... Maybe they rang you up or they sent, we didn't have a text messaging or email or anything like that. Maybe they sent you, maybe they posted you a letter even. Um, <laughs> gosh, yeah, I've forgotten. But, but yeah, I mean, they were a, a huge, and of course school libraries as mm. well. Um, as an adult, you know, I have, I have two small children and you cannot buy, you, you, this really is brought home to you in lockdown. You cannot buy all the picture books mm. that two small children read. <laughs> Um, and 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 still have space in your house to <laughs> to move. Um, so that's been the and both my both my children love books. Um, mm. And 
it's been lovely getting reports back from school and nursery and saying, oh yeah, you know, they love reading, they love books. And, <laughs> and being like, yeah, you know, thank you libraries. Cause that's, <laughs> that's, that's, that's what well, that is. Always happy to provide books to children. That's one of the joys of doing this job is actually seeing kids come in and get their books and be excited. I have to say it is a real joy of being a librarian. You're seeing people be excited about books. So my last question for you then, the last one is, Silent Stars Go By, when's it yeah. released? Uh, November. November, uh, brilliant. Yeah, beginning of, beginning of November. Um, the perfect book for Christmas. And on that note, I want to say thank you very much for joining me today and having a fantastic conversation. It's been really interesting and good luck with uh, when the silent stars go by and good luck with whatever you're writing at the moment. <laughs> thank you. You got to the end. Well done. We hope you enjoyed our conversation with Sally. Her book, The Silent Stars Go By, is available now in the library and anywhere you'd expect to find good books. If you'd like more information on our services, digital and otherwise, then visit our website, kent.gov libs. If you'd like to follow us on social media, we have a Facebook page linked below. And if you fancy this as a podcast, we have that also linked below. We hope you have a great day. We hope you're well. Goodbye. <laughs>